What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Our guest in this podcast is David Marinus, a favorite author of mine and one of the best and most versatile writers in America today. David's interested in and writes a lot about almost everything. On sports, for example, he's written books about legendary coach Vince Lombardi and baseball great Roberto Clemente. On politics, he's published best-selling biographies of both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. In another book, he chronicled the collapse of the once great city of Detroit. His latest book, called A Good American Family, is a lot more personal. It's about himself, his family, and especially his father. David documents how his family suffered way back in the 1950s when his father, a World War II vet and editor of the local paper, lost his job and his career when he was falsely accused of being a communist agent and called to testify before the notorious House Un-American Activities Committee. It's a true story and a frightening story, which David told me all about recently in front of an audience at the Hill Center on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. So, David, let me start there. I mean, your books, and you look back, they include sports figures, book about the city of Detroit, books about presidents, the 1960 Olympics, the Vietnam anti-war protests, big, big, big scale. And on this one, you're focusing on your family. (laughs) (laughs) You go from all that that big down to your home? Um, It was different. Um, certainly, you know, I'd spent much of my career as a biographer, um, delving into the lives of people who were strangers to me at the beginning. And after four years of research, they became familiar. And here I was dealing with my father and mother who, uh, were intimately familiar to me, but I was afraid that using the same methodology I use in all of my books, that they might seem more strangers by the end. Uh, that did not happen. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, in so many ways, a different experience, especially psychologically and emotionally dealing with, uh, you know, we all, all of us here um, have family stories, family mythology um, that's passed down from one generation to another. Some of it might be true, some of it not. But we don't have a biographer going back into looking at the reality of what happened. And that's what I did in this case. What triggered your you to write about your dad. What was it that prompted you to tell this story? The book is about my father being called before the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1952 uh, after his name was named by an informant in Detroit. And he was fired from his job as a newspaper man. And we bounced around for five years while he was blacklisted. Uh, My father, by the time I became of a conscious age, had survived that and moved on. I was two when this happened. Um, by age 
seven, after the five years of blacklisting, my father started teaching me all of the lessons of his life. Don't fall for any rigid ideology. Search for the truth wherever it takes you. Um, and he had survived and moved on and created a wonderful life for himself, my mother as well, and our family. It was not something he talked about. And it was not something I was going to write about while he was alive. Um, I wanted to honor him in that way, but, but it was probably a book that was in me all along. And it's, you know, about eight years ago, I started thinking about it deeply and thinking about, you know, I'm doing all these other biographies, you know, exploring the mythology of Barack Obama, you know, in different ways, and Bill Clinton and Vince Lombardi. And it's time for me to really explore my own life. Why, not just my, my parents, but also to learn from that why I am the way I am, which happened with the research for this book. Your dad was a member of the Communist Party. He was. My, my parents met at the University of Michigan in the, the mid-1930s, late 1930s, a period that in many ways was uh, sort of similar to the 1960s in terms of its activism. Um, they were motivated by the idealism of the Great Depression and the challenges of capitalism during that era, by the rise of fascism in Italy and Nazism in Germany, and by the ever-present racial injustice of the U.S. Those were the idealistic things that brought them into this. Um, my mother was a member of the Young Communist League at, at the Mich University of Michigan. Her older brother... Um, was also a Michigan uh, student and went off to fight in the Spanish Civil War, one of three Michigan students who, who were, joined the Abraham Lincoln Brigade in Spain. My father was the editor, editorial editor of the Michigan Daily um, in the late 1930s and was radicalized during that period. And, um, you know, when I'm going through the editorials that he wrote, um, there's times when I shake my head and said, what were you thinking, Dad? You know? <laughs> I mean, and not about funny things, you know, like his support, his rationalization of the Nazi-Soviet pact in 1939, which a lot of young communists found a way to support, even though it was indefensible. Um, and then he was, he, he went off, well, we'll get to that. He, he, yeah. was, he was in World War II, and, and in 52, he was called before the committee because of his past. Right. Uh, you mentioned some of the some of the factors that drove some Americans to consider joining the Communist Party. Was it ever? And you also mentioned so you were growing up in Ann Arbor. This happened in Ann Arbor, right? Michigan is where it started. Detroit yeah. is where he was fired. Okay. Yes. Um, at the Detroit Times, he worked. You mentioned that at at one point there around that time, there were one thousand three hundred and thirty-two members of the Communist Party. <laughs> in Michigan, which had a population of 6.4 million. So it does raise the question, was the Communist Party, American Communist Party, ever a real serious threat at all? Um, I would say no. I would say that there were certainly some um, members of the Communist Party in the United States who were either agents for the Soviet Union or or uh, advancing the Soviet arguments. Um, and some were, you know, like Alger Hiss was in the State Department. I mean, there's, and there were other 
people who were spies for the Soviet Union, a very minute number of that already minute number of total members of the Communist Party USA. Um, it was the, the whole basis of the attack on the party was that if you were a member of the Communist Party USA, that meant automatically that you, you uh, supported the violent overthrow of the United States government. Which your father did not. Never. No, I mean, you, absolutely not. He loved the United States and was trying to improve it. He was naive about the Soviet Union, to say the least. But, but the vast, vast majority of leftists, communists, socialists of that era, people who were either in the party or sympathetic to it in some way, um, were not in any way espousing the overthrow of the American government. One thing that I found striking was that at the hearing where your father is called in, uh, the chairman is Chairman John Stevens Wood. Yes. Who was a member of the KKK, uh, who was a sponsor of the poll tax in the United States Congress. Um, so who was the un-American? Well, that's your the central... father or the chairman of the committee? Yeah, thank you for asking, because I consider that the central question of the book. Who is American? I mean, it's a question that's as valid today as ever. Um, who decides who's American? Um, John Stevens Wood, yes, was a, a Southern racist. Yes, was uh, briefly a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And also um, was involved in the most notorious lynching in Georgia history, uh, the lynching of Leo Frank, the Jewish industrialist who was accused falsely of of murdering a 13-year-old woman, girl, in his pencil factory. And um, that event was like the, this is a bad analogy, but it's sort of like the OJ trial of its era in that everybody, it was front page news for, for, there was no TV, but the New York Times covered it, the Chicago Tribune, the Anti-Defamation League actually was born because of that case. So much pressure was put on that, that the governor commuted the death sentence of Leo Frank. And the powers that be in Marietta, Georgia, where the girl was from, were so enraged by this and by their own sort of anti-Northern populist, anti-Semitic fervor, that they concocted a plot to go up to the prison where Leo Frank was held, seize him from the prison, put him in the back of a car, drive him back to a field near Marietta, and lynch him. The mastermind of that plot was Marietta's most powerful figure, a judge named Newt Morris. And Newt Morris's chief disciple was John Stevens Wood, the future chairman of the House Un-American Activities Committee. It was Wood who drove the car that carried the lynched body of Leo Frank. So this person, this congressman, is the one calling my father, who, as we'll see, commanded an all-black unit in World War II, un-American. Right. I, I wanted to get to that because the other thing that struck me was, going on at the time, um, was the worst of um, treatment of African-Americans in this country since slavery, I guess. But so there was segregation in the military, uh, obviously still segregation in American schools and businesses, restaurants, uh, that veterans coming home from the war, who had, um, African-Americans who had fought in the war coming home and not being able to enjoy the freedoms uh, of this country, that in the military, there, that there were also this, these battles going on between Def among defense workers, white yes. people work, white 
and the workers in the defense factories did not want African Americans coming up from the South and working in these defense plants. I mean, that was a reality that the Communist Party, American Communist of the USA, was able to exploit. Right, they did exploit of. it. Um, my parents were involved on both ends of that. Um, my mother, during the war, worked as a Rosie the Riveter in a defense plant in Detroit, which was where riots broke out in 1943 between black and white workers over housing and everything else that was going on in the tensions of that, that moment in the racism of Detroit. My mother was a stop sh shop steward and was... Uh, taking a trolley through the, the area where uh, part of the violence was going on, and she was untouched. Um, and my family's sort of legend is that it was because of, of her goodness about that issue. But in any case, at the same time, my father was in the military. He enlisted right after uh, Pearl Harbor. Um, he was investigated by military intelligence because of his radical past at Michigan. Um, for a while, he was, as many radicals were, he was put into isolated posts. Some were sent to the Aleutian Islands. He was sent out to West Texas and Oklahoma. And finally, in late 1944, he got his shot, which was he, he had gone through officer candidate school, and he was put in charge of training and leading an all-black unit uh, at Camp Lee, Virginia. Um, and in researching this book, I was able to get 100 letters that my father wrote to my mother uh, as he was in that process. And they're incredibly illuminating about his understanding of the complexity of a situation where he was training young black men who were being asked to fight and perhaps die in the name of democracy and liberty for a country that treated them as second-class citizens. And in his letters, you see him sort of being proud that he's training this group in a way that the, the, um, the NCOs aren't considered Uncle Toms. They were black, the officers were white. As it turns out in that segregated racist era, um, the officers of these all black units tended to be almost exclusively either Southerners who were considered, would know how to handle blacks because of the dealings of, in the South and the racism in the South. Um, or Northern Radicals, and my father was in the latter group. Um, and he trained and led this, this black company in a way that they thought they were getting a fair shake. Uh, I had never seen before this poem by Langston Hughes, which you quote uh, in the book, just one stanza. Yet you say we're fighting for democracy, then why don't democracy include me? I ask this question because I want to know, how long I got to fight both Hitler and Jim and Crow. Jim Crow. Yeah. That was the reality of that time. I mean, you know, the greatest generation, the good war, um, all of that can be true. And yet there's this uh, other side to, to the reality of race in America coexisting with that. We're at the Hill Center in Washington, D.C., talking with David Marinus, author of A Good American Family. Time for a quick break on today's Bill Press Pod and today's podcast brought to you by the Iron Workers Union. You know, they've been organizing and fighting for American construction workers since the 1890s. Iron workers have worked on every major construction project you can think of, including 
the Golden Gate Bridge, the Sears Tower, the St. Louis Arch, the World Trade Center, and the Freedom Tower. And under the leadership of President Eric Dean, they're working on every major construction project underway today. We salute the ironworkers for their good work, direct you to the website at ironworkers.org, and thank them for their sponsorship of the Bill Press Pod. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. A good American family. And you talk about this. It had many um, echoes for me because growing up about the same time, you know, family, having family reunions, having barbecues, loving baseball, going to the beach. I mean... All that was that, your family. That was right? all of my family, yes. And how did um, being identified as a communist and fired impact your family? I mean, there's a real cost that a lot of families suffered, yours in particular. The title comes from a, a quote from one of the members of the committee, Charles E. Potter of Michigan, who was on the, the House on american Activities Committee when my father was called before it. And in a speech, he said he was shocked that anybody from a good American family could be attracted to communism or socialism. I read that and said, well, I've come from a good American family. <laughs> um, and uh, we were, you know, we were affected by it. As I said, I was only two, not quite three when this happened. We bounced around for five years, three kids. I had an older brother, Jim, and a sister, Jeannie. Jim was six and Jeannie was five. I was two. Um, when my father was fired, um, we moved to his parents' little apartment in Coney Island, Brooklyn. He was working briefly for a newspaper called The Compass before that folded after a month or so. 
Then we moved back to Ann Arbor where my mother's parents lived um, briefly in their house. Again, five, you know, three kids and the parents and the grandparents. Then we moved to Cleveland when my father was able to land a job on the Cleveland Plain Dealer because some of his friends from the University of Michigan worked there. And that lasted until the FBI visited the editor of the Plain Dealer and said, you hired a former communist. He was fired. We went back to Detroit, moved a couple of times in Detroit. My father was blacklisted from the newspaper business. He actually spent some time selling party favors for labor picnics. You know, anybody who knew my father knows how preposterous that idea was, <laughs> uh, trying to sell anything. He was a tried and true newspaper man, and that's pretty much what he was. Then we, then um, a newspaper, or, the typographers, the printers um, of the da Davenport and Rock Island papers went on strike. And the, the ITU, the Typographical Union, formed a, a, a labor paper there called Labor's Daily. They hired my father to be the editor. Um, and that was the start of the turning of our lives. He, you know, it was sort of a ragtag operation, but my father was truly excellent at every part of newspapering, the layout, the headlines. My favorite headline he ever wrote was when Bing Crosby died. Mm. Uh, the, the headline was, uh, Crosby dies at 74, two over par. <laughs> he, he died on a golf course, par is 72. The average age for a male in the United States then was 72. So, you know, it was great. Anyway, he, was, he, he knew how to do it. But he put out this little paper, and every other week, the paper would run a column called Hello, Wisconsin, by the old progressive founder and publisher of the Madison Capital Times, William T. Evu, a great friend of fighting Bob La Follette. And Evu saw this little paper down in Iowa it said, who's putting this out? It's better than our paper. You know, it just looked really good and they had the interesting things in it. They were covering the Montgomery bus boycott when no one else in the North was and um, things like that. And so the, the strike paper folded and have you brought my father up to Madison. Um, we got there in the summer of 1957, Joseph McCarthy, the Wisconsin senator whose name is given to that entire era had just died. The Milwaukee Braves were on their way to winning the World Series. <laughs> I was turning eight. We lived near the zoo, and our family was saved. <laughs> did you, as part of the research, I didn't see this, but did you ever try to figure out how many people spent from the FBI, oh. how many agents spent how many hours, days, months, following your father around. I mean, every single place he went, there was an FBI agent following him for years. Yes, I, I, I filed a Freedom of Information Act request for my father's FBI files. Um, I got the first batch after a year and a half, and it was 100 pages or so. And then another batch a year later, another 100 plus pages. And in that, you see, I never counted the hours, but you see them basically following almost every day, either an FBI informant or an FBI agent. Um, I think I counted something like 17 agents and 37 informants who were keeping track 
of my father, you know, who was who was going to work and going to meetings and talking and writing and never committing any crimes, never uh, doing anything other than being an American and expressing his opinions, which were controversial, certainly, and and you might say wrong-headed, but but that's what America is all about. So we read your reaction to all of this in the book, but we also get to hear for the first time your father's reaction uh, in this statement, which you include in the book, that he wanted to give in front of that committee to explain who he was and what he was all about, and the chairman would not let him read it. Yeah, um, it was uh, in May of 2015 when I, the, the, the statement had been essentially buried when the, when the chairman wouldn't let my father read it. And in May of 2015, I went to the National Archives and found the boxes of material on the Detroit hearings. And there was a folder that said Elliot Marinus. And inside the folder was my father's statement. Um, I had known it existed because the, the transcripts of all congressional hearings are public record. So I'd read him saying, I'd like to give a statement about what I think it means to be an American. And then the chairman would, the Southern racist saying, no, you can't do that. He would have been allowed to do it if he had uh, confessed to his sins and named names, which he did not do. Um, so, you know, this book came out a few weeks ago and I've gone around the country and, and every place I've gone, I've wanted to read part of the statement to give my father his voice after 67 years. Statement of Elliot Marinus. I was taught as a child and in school that the highest responsibility of citizenship is to defend the principles of the US Constitution and to do my part in securing for the American people the blessings of peace, economic well-being, and freedom. I've tried to do that to the very best of my ability. And for doing just that and nothing more, I have been summarily discharged from my job. I have been blacklisted in the newspaper business after 12 years in which my competence and objectivity have never once been questioned. I must sell my home, uproot my family, and upset the tranquility and security of my three small children in the happy formative years of their childhood. But I would rather have my children miss a meal or two now than have them grow up in the gruesome, fear-ridden future for America projected by members of the House Committee on Un-American Activities. I don't like to talk about these things but my Americanism has been questioned. And to properly measure a man's Americanism, you must know the whole pattern of a life. The US Constitution and its Bill of Rights are not simply musty documents in a library. They have meaning only if they are used. To betray and subvert the Bill of Rights is the most un-American act any man or committee can do. For that document was brought into being and maintained throughout our history by men who gave their lives and blood. Every newspaper man knows that history is not a printed page. It's the passion and striving, the struggling and endurance of men and women. These qualities that went into the making of our nation can be discarded only at great peril to ourselves and our children. From the time of Peter Zenger, the colonial printer who defied the British crown's effort to impose censorship in the American colonies, right down to the present, newspaper men have zealously defended freedom of the press. For the First Amendment is not only a guarantee of free speech and a free press, it's also an indispensable part of self-government. That's what makes this committee so dangerous. 
ostensibly designed to protect the government against overthrow by force and violence. It proceeds by force, terror, and threats to overthrow the rights of the American people. This committee reflects no credit on American institutions or ideas. Its attempt to enforce conformity of political or economic thought is a long step toward dictatorship that holds the greatest danger to the American people. In this country, we have never acquiesced in the proposition that persons could be punished for their beliefs. Statement of Elliot Marinus, read by his son 67 years later. Uh, now you know why the chairman did not want him to read it. <laughs> um, some of the letters that he wrote to your mother, uh, and this one in particular, where he wrote, I forget where he was now, but at any rate, he he's in mili military service, writing back to his wife's home with a couple of kids, maybe not yeah. you yet, who says, whatever else I do in my life, you can be sure that I will also write. When I come back to civilian life, I will most likely go back to newspaper work and make that work my base of operations for whatever writing I do. From that, I can branch off into other kinds of writing, but I will always do newspaper work also, for I love it, and it is in my blood. No doubt why you are who you are. <laughs> <laughs> the apple did not fall far. You know, I've, all my, you know, my adult life, I've said, I love writing, it's in my blood. I never knew that my father used the exact same words. And when I read that, it just washed over me, you know, yes. And I'm proud to be my father's son yeah. and uh, my mother's. <laughs> and another great writer. I saw a quote of yours today also, which struck me that you said, um, I look for two things when I'm about to launch into a book. First, there has to be a dramatic arc to the arc to the story itself that will carry me and the reader from beginning to end. Second, the story has to weave through larger themes that can illuminate the world of the subject. Um, so I want to ask you, what larger themes do you see coming out of this book today? And are there any parallels today that you see to the age of McCarthyism? I started this book before President, before Donald Trump rode down the golden escalator. Um, but everything that's happened since um, has echoes from the past and the period that I wrote about. The use and manipulation of language um, to, uh, for political purposes, the use and manipulation of fear and hysteria for political purposes, and the central question of what does it mean to be an American and who decides and how is that decided? I mean, from the, from the Muslim ban to the, the activities at the southern border, um, to the disparagement of a Latino judge, um, to the use of the language in, in Orwellian ways. Um, Joseph McCarthy, the, the sort of the, the, the person who was most, most known for that earlier period of the Red Scare, um, was a demagogue who really didn't have an ideology except for himself and, and took advantage of, of the history of that moment and fed it. And I think we have a president now who's doing that. And the one major difference is that McCarthy was a senator. The members of the UAC, House on american Activities Committee, were congressmen.
and now we have a president doing the same thing. And that's it for this episode of the Bill Press Pod with David Marinus. Again, the name of this new book is A Good American Family. Thanks to David, and thanks to all of you for listening. Before we wrap, one quick reminder. Now, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. And do it now. It's easy, and it's free. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or TuneIn, or wherever you go for your podcast. Search for the Bill Press Pod. Click on subscribe, and you're in. And while you're there, if you enjoy the podcast, give us a big, fat five-star review. You know, that's the best way you can help us grow the podcast. And by the way, don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at BillPressPod, at BillPressPod. That way, you'll get advance notice of every new podcast, and I promise not to bug you on Twitter as often or as ugly as Donald Trump does. Again, thanks for joining us. Stay strong. We'll be looking for you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.